You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Judith Peppard, and today we'll be looking at the calls to introduce consent education curriculum into Australian schools to prevent sexual harassment and sexual assault against women. But is it enough? issues today we put up in the workforce 40 odd years ago and I nothing's changed and I can't believe it so it's my first rally but I'm angry enough today to come out I'm a feminist and I work in politics and I would never want anyone to go through the experiences I've been through in the field and I've been here for like a year so I just don't want to wish it on anyone and I think it's shit that our government isn't doing anything about it I've come from ANU Students Association I'm the education officer Um, And I've come here to march today because I became a survivor when I was 17 and I don't want my younger sister to go through it who is 16 and look enough is enough and it's time for us to stand up as women and non-binary people. Voices of some of the women who attended the March for Justice rally in Canberra on March the 15th this year. The alleged assault of former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins in the offices of Parliament and the way it was dealt with were tipping points that led women to take to the streets. But even before that, the work of former Sydney schoolgirl Chanel Contos was receiving national attention. It started with an Instagram poll conducted by Contos, asking women within her networks about their experiences of sexual assault by their male peers during their high school years. The response was overwhelming, and what was particularly concerning was that many didn't know that what had happened to them was against the law. As a result, Chanel Contos started a petition calling for consent education to be included in the Australian school curriculum. Over 40,000 people have now signed that petition, and the call for consent education may at last be heard, but it's not new. I was curious about how the current developments fit into the broader context of sexuality and relationships education in Australia. So I invited Deb Ollis to do an interview for Communication Mixdown. Deb is an associate professor in education at Deakin University. She's had a career in health and sexuality education that extends over 30 years. I began by asking Deb Ollis what sparked her interest in sexuality education. How did it all begin? 
It goes back to my pre-service teacher training days. I did five years to be both a physical education, home economics and health teacher. So I did two units uh, related to sexuality education. The assessment I did around gender, sexuality, diversity. Once I started teaching, I was armed with my feminism, my need to change the world. And because I was the only graduate who had some aspect of all of those areas, I became the coordinator of the faculty. My passion for sexuality and relationship education was a catalyst to implementing that. So you've been working in the sexuality relationships education field for a lot of years. What do we know now about what's effective, what works? It's quite a complex question, actually, Judith. To begin with, aspects of sexuality education were taught under a public health model. During the 1980s and 90s, we saw the emergence of the very strong policy and practical framework around the education of girls. Now, the education of girls broadened the whole notion of what something like sexuality and relationships education would look like because they recognised that unless we addressed issues related to young women's life, like violence, like pregnancy, even back then like pleasure, unless those areas were incorporated, you couldn't have a comprehensive approach. So you're talking about girls, young women, you're talking about gender, are you also talking at that time about gender and power? They were identifying that. Sexual harassment was the first issue that really emerged that needed to be addressed in schools around the education of girls and their ability to take advantage of educational opportunities, as was, say, family violence. In the early 90s, I was seconded from the education department in Victoria to write a position paper on gender-based violence education for Australian schools. And my colleague, Irene Tomaszewski, and myself travelling around the country, consulting with every state and territory about how they understood violence against women in schools, how it was addressed from primary right through to year 12 did an analysis of the current curriculum resources that were around. And then we came up with a set of recommendations, which were the forerunners to a resource called No Fear. And that was a whole school approach to addressing gender-based violence in schools. Now, that was in 1995. So, in 1995, Australia already had a national resource addressing gender-based violence, funded by the federal government, based on research conducted in all states and territories, and recommending a whole school approach. I asked Deb Ollis what that meant. It means engaging the community. So that might be parents, it could be the local elders. It's about the ethos of the school. So if we're teaching kids in their classrooms about sexual harassment and gender and gender inequality, and then on the sports field, we hear them yelling out, oh, you're playing like a girl or, or you're poofter, or, or that is not a whole school approach. It needs to be consistent across the whole school. So that's about cultural change, professional development, teaching and learning. You don't want things being 
taught in the classroom and then students get a different message in other parts of the school environment. Yes, absolutely. And it also needs to be engaged with the leadership of the school so that it, there is support for the programs and approaches that are taken in the school. And I imagine students would need to have a voice. Absolutely. And I think the issue of student voice, Judith, is something that really has emerged over the last 10 years. And I've seen the rhetoric in government policies there is still limited evidence of a truly participatory co-development approach with young people. And I've seen that emerge in the most recent debates around consent. Chanel Quantos' survey. Yes, absolutely. And look, we did some research in 2016 with Bruce Johnson from University of South Australia and we looked at what young people want to learn and how they want to learn. The issues that young people wanted more information about, that the top 10 were violence in relationships, gender and sexual diversity, starting relationships, ending relationships, what sexual practices are, uh, pornography. You can actually see how related they are to what's happening now. But the richest part of that was we then worked with schools in an in-depth way for two years, working with young people to develop approaches to sexuality education in a co-participatory way, and it was extremely rich. From what you're saying, consent has been really included in curriculum for quite a long time. There was a resource that was around when I first started teaching. Well, it was when I was at uni. Um, I bought it at uni. It was called Taught Not Caught by the Clarity Collective. And I think anybody in my age bracket will know that resource because it's all we had to teach sexuality education. But it was a really great resource. It was inclusive around gender and sexuality. It was inclusive across a range of areas, including issues around consent. Then from that time there have been a range of resources. One of the first ones I was involved in modifying was one called Standing Strong which came through a rape crisis centre in New Zealand. It was brilliant. looked at values and attitudes to gender, looked at power, looked at really difficult issues like incest, like it was a really excellent resource. At a theoretical level it had its shortcomings but from there it No Fear was developed in 1995. Now those resources were for primary and secondary schools and given to every school in the country. And there was so much in there on consent. In addition to that, in 2001, I was involved in developing a resource for the Commonwealth called Talking Sexual Health. And again, it is full of activities and approaches to teaching about sexual consent and gender-based violence. In Victoria, most recently, I've been involved in developing the building respectful relationships, stepping out against gender-based violence, which fits within the three R respectful relationships approach that Victoria has implemented in schools. And I've just been going through it the last two days to see, does it still fit? And it does. There are still loads of work in that on consent and free agreement. Very explicit material. South Australia has teach it like it is one and teach it like it is two. Now, both of those also look at consent. Western Australia has a resource. When I develop resources. I don't reinvent the wheel. I take what's been really good practice and modify it. And, you know, maybe it needs to be modified to be more inclusive of LGBTIQ plus students, or it may need some other modification to include non-binary students. But we have excellent material. 
If you've just joined us on Communication Mixdown, I'm speaking with Deb Aulis, an Associate Professor in Education at Deakin University, specializing in the areas of sexuality and relationships education. Deb's told us that we already have excellent materials for teaching sexuality and relationships education, including consent education. So what's the problem? Deb will tell us more after these announcements. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Three CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. And you are on 3CR. And that was a reminder that Radiothon is coming up next month. So do think about subscribing to keep Radical Radio and all those wonderful voices on air. You're on Communication Mixed Down. I'm Judith Peppard, and I'm speaking with Deb Aldous from Deakin University about sexuality and relationships education. Now, Deb's already told us that we have excellent teaching materials developed here in Australia, so why haven't they been used? It's still extremely ad hoc, and really I think the key is the professional development of teachers in schools and in pre-service teacher education. We can't expect teachers to be covering these issues without adequate professional learning, whether that's at an academic level, at a practical level. The last time we had any national professional development in this space was in 2001. That was the last time at a national level, and that was for talking sexual health. So we're talking about 20 years since there's been a national approach to professional development, but it's not compulsory. It's not supported in schools. I'm talking about government schools. My career has been in the government school sector. We've seen in Victoria, with respectful relationships, the Catholic education area have come on board. That's only one part of sexuality education. We've got to talk about sex. That means if we're going to talk about sex, we're going to talk about consent, we're going to talk about sexual abuse, we have to talk about pleasure. So there are a whole lot of things that need to be addressed, providing the sort of approach that young people want. The young people that I have researched have said, we don't want to keep hearing about all the negative things. We want to hear about the positive things. It's always positioned as it's bad, it's wrong, it's harm, it's disease. In fact, the Talking Sexual Health Project that I worked on in the late 90s, early 2000s, the money came out of HIV money. But as a result of that, our research showed that the areas that were lacking was gender and power and issues around sexual diversity. And we incorporated issues around diseases in a strength-based approach, but it was about disease. Yes, as you say, that was the driver, was the reason the government funded it. Yes, absolutely. But it did enable us to open up questions around gender. And HIV really put sex 
and talking about sex up front. Yeah, and that was in 1989 that national policy came out that said you got to talk about it. That's right. And I think Australia was so successful in its approach to HIV because they spoke to the communities affected. And so that was really important. So that impacted on what we did in schools. HIV education became compulsory. We had to teach it. What was interesting, though, if we go back to Chanel and the whole issue of consent and the non-government sector, the independent sector, I was asked, because I was working as a policy officer back then, and I was asked to come out, do a session on HIV, but I'm not to talk about sex. What have been the barriers to implementing comprehensive sexuality and relationships education? We can't ignore the impact of the sort of cultural environment. Maria Pilotti-Corelli calls the the three very loud parents who upset the education departments. My experience, it's not parents. It it is just some sort of loud voices who come from very conservative background, often a religious background. That's not always the case. I've done work in Catholic schools where they've been very progressive. So there's that cultural context. There's the bravery of the education departments to do this work, to actually acknowledge the, the research that shows this is needed and implement this area in policy. But I think the biggest barriers that have emerged for me is teacher professional development and support in schools. The work that I do with my pre-service teachers, they leave me after a six-day intensive fired up to do this work, but I have to prepare them for hitting schools that are going to say, you can't do that. If we're preparing teachers and then they hit a system where that moral panic, and I guess that's what I guess I was talking about in that first point, that there are very powerful disincentives if you don't have thick skin like me. But the pressure to do something about sexual assault has moved even the Commonwealth Government to act. In the past few weeks, we retreated to the consent videos, now removed, featuring tacos and milkshakes, produced as part of the Good Society resource for teaching respectful relationships, all funded by the Commonwealth Government. I asked Deb Ollis what she thought of the videos. Look, I just find them insulting to young people, quite frankly. It trivialises the whole issue of sexual consent. The message is confused. What's most worrying in terms of these resources that have been developed, I have a very large network of both academic and practitioner colleagues across the country. Now, none of us have been engaged in any consultation around these resources. I've been through the Respect Matters website and some of the NGOs that are mentioned are not what I would call specialist in sexuality education. They work in the family violence area, but not in sexuality education, and they are not educators. And that's quite obvious in terms of the project brief that was given to the advertising agency that developed uh, the Good Society. And I've actually been through the site and the teaching and learning activities that go with the series about eight videos are narrow, they are confusing, they are boring. So there is no way that you could explore with young people the reality of the social world in which they make decisions about their sexuality and sexual health. 
One of the challenges we have moving forward is approaching this in a way that we can assist particularly young men around understanding that they haven't caused this problem. It is an embedded cultural, generational, misogynistic world that we live in that is built very much on power and inequality. We need them to help find an answer to changing it. And that involves really looking at the nuances of relationships and what that means because what we've done to date obviously isn't working. We just have to look at the level of violence against women. I had a a year 12 teacher contact me yesterday to say, look, if you've got time for a coffee, I've got all these angry year 12 girls and I've got these boys who don't know what to do. Looking back over the years you've been involved, were there any key moments or events that have progressed the goals around sexuality education and relationships education? The first one is undoubtedly the gender equity area because it looked at the impact of gender relations and relationships. That's really where we started to see it broadening, that we started to look at the social world in which we live and the media. So you're talking about the feminist movement going back to the 70s. Yes, yes. That work that they were doing around raising the issues around violence against women and HIV perhaps the next really important event because it put sex on the map but also sexual diversity and it enabled a whole lot of research projects by places like Archers and Lynn Hillier who did writing themselves in so it enabled a focus on sexual diversity. 1991 was when we got our first policy in Victoria, HIV education policy and then I started working on the National Gender and Violence Project. All these things were emerging to put sexuality education into the curriculum. And then once that was done and talking sexual health was developed, nothing happened. What we saw was, what about the boys? So the whole agenda shifted to what about the boys? During that time, there was no support to schools around any of these issues until we saw the respectful relationships agenda emerge again. I was really concerned that they were changing the name to respectful relationships, education, rather than education about violence against women because people didn't understand what respectful relationships education was. They thought it was about, you know, teaching respect. Be nice. Teaching people how to be nice. That's it, Judith, be nice. That it wasn't. So run professional development and teachers would go, what the, you know, This is about violence against women. You know, these statistics around violence against women. What's that got to do with respectful relationships education? And one teacher, when I was trialling the material, he said, look, I don't like this term gender-based violence. Respectful relationships I can deal with. Well, in the end, he became an advocate for calling it gender-based violence education because he really had misunderstood what it meant himself. So, But having said that, I think the re-emergence of a concern, national policies to address violence against women and family violence has enabled sexuality education to be back on the agenda. What is most encouraging about Brittany Higgins and Chanel Contos is that they're voices of young people 
and we've got politicians who are starting to listen to those voices. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Deb Ollis, an associate professor in education at Deakin University, who specialises in the areas of sexuality and relationships education. As Deb has advised, consent education has been part of sexuality and relationships education in Australia since the 1980s. But there's been many barriers to the implementation of programs, and those barriers still exist. Going back to where this first started, you know, where you were talking about the moral panic and the politics, the the politicians still need so much work to really understand. We need to be talking about sexuality education, not just respect. I guess the other thing that we know from media campaigns or school-based sexuality education, sexuality education alone can't do it. We need broader change. Absolutely, Judith. What they've tried to do in Victoria is embed an approach to addressing family violence, often violence against women and children, into other areas of social life. So they've been working with hairdressers, the police, journalists. They've been working with doctors. But that's on this one aspect of sexuality education. But we've got to do it across the board. I'm thinking about a paper you wrote with Amanda Keddy about the National Community Attitudes Towards Violence Against Women survey that found that nearly a quarter of young people 16 to 24 agreed that women tend to exaggerate the problem of male violence. One in seven said women often make false allegations of sexual assault, and one in eight weren't aware that non-consensual sex and marriage is a criminal offence. This survey suggests that there still is a long way to go. Absolutely. In the building respectful relationship, we use those statistics as a teaching and learning activity to unpack those issues with young people. But I think if we go back to what we talked about before, the best resources in the world are not going to work if teachers haven't had professional development, if they're not supported by the schools that they teach in, if the schools aren't funded by the government that they work under in the context of a broad whole-of-community approach, then of course we're going to see those sorts of statistics because those sort of discourses are, are just reproduced in families in football clubs, in a range of sort of social environments that young people are part of. Some of those attitudes are so entrenched, particularly attitudes and condoning of those attitudes between groups of men. Look, I'm quite hopeful that the engagement of young people is really going to push the envelope on this work and and I don't know that they're going to give up. They want this education. So hopefully this is catalyst to get something done We might be in a a real moment of change. One can only hope, Judith. I hope that in 20 years' time, as I'm approaching my 82nd birthday, I'll say, at last there's been change. How has it been for you personally working in a potentially controversial area? Have you been subject to attack? Before I tell you that I have, I want to say that I have had the most wonderful career in sexuality education. I have loved it. 
I've loved researching with young people and with teachers and with schools. And I also work with elite athletes in this space. But I've had three or four very bad incidents of sort of vilification. I had ex-leader of the Labor Party, Mark Latham, do a number on me, calling me the feminist Trojan horse and the gender whisperer and wanting to disrupt the gender relationships. So I've got that in a frame. I, I hold that up with pride. And I've had emails and things like that. But I've got a thick skin and what's always been important for me is that this makes a difference to the lives of young people. Deb Wallace, Associate Professor in Education at Deakin University. And a big thank you to her for joining us on Communication Mixed Down today. It's been terrific to have her insights on where we've been and what the challenges are for getting sexuality and relationships education, including consent education, on the curriculum and put into practice in Australian schools. And we're coming up to the end of Communication Mixed Down. I'll leave you with this great celebration of women by Oitha. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.